welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome back to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. We are so excited for this episode. This is really an end of the semester holiday break treat because this is our second episode made in collaboration with the fine folks at the Journal of Music Theory Pedagogy in which we are talking to not just one theorist, not two, not three, four, or even five, but six music theorists on an article that they worked together to create called Corralling the Corral, which will be coming out in uh, next year's uh, volume of the Journal of Music Theory Pedagogy. And so this article features Chelsea Burns, William O'Hara, Marcy Pearson, Kate Pukinskis, Peter Schmucker, and William Van Geest. It's a great conversation. You're going to learn so much and hopefully get you excited to read their article. Again, we want to give a huge shout out to the fine folks at the Journal of Music Theory Pedagogy, Steve Lates, Rebecca Jemian, David Thurmeyer, Jenny Snodgrass for helping us put these together. Um, it's been a blast and we hope that we can collaborate again in the future. So here is our conversation on Corralling the Corral. It really struck me how um, the corral permeates um, our music theoretical instruction, at least if these textbooks are in any indication. There's a kind of voice leading that is good, and that is like Bach. Um, but then there's actually like a lot of music I like that doesn't, <laughs> you know, use that kind of voice leading at all. Um, and so to call it good is actually, you know, there's a problem there, I think. What I prioritize in, in my classes with my students is is encouraging them to be flexible in their expectations of how these things we teach them in the abstract actually show up or get used or utilized in music. I think one of the good things about looking at Neo-Ramanian theory is that it's such a different view of voice leading and it totally hinges on voice leading, but it brings you into totally different styles of music. Try to think long-term, try to think the long game. Um, small incremental changes, but within those incremental changes, that actually gives you more and more opportunities to, to present those ideas to your faculty. I think actually one of the things that really works well about the colloquy um, is the way in which having this one very focused touch point allows us to radiate out with all of these questions that, that sort of permeate the rest of our work as well. So today our very special guests are actually a handful, a colloquy. So in the academic tradition of having words that are hard to spell and pronounce, we have a whole group of folks with us um, and who have come together to write an article on the upcoming uh, JMTP on Corralling the Corral. And I think this is an amazing paper. I loved reading it. We have so many questions to ask. We'll get to maybe a handful of them, but it's such a rich, rich article. And today will be just kind of like a, an amuse-bouche, just something to whet your appetite for what uh, you'll be able to read in full detail in the, uh, in, the, in the article when it comes out in January. So before we get started with the details, I want to just kind of go around and have folks um, introduce, uh, introduce themselves, their name, 
their their uh, their article and kind of where they're at. And hopefully, as a listener, you can remember what their voices sound like because there'll be a lot of voices in here. And uh, and so, who's who's talking? Who's it might be a little bit tricky, but we're gonna have a good time. So um, I'll start. I see Peter there, and so if you would uh, start, and then we'll kind of go around. Yeah, hi everyone. My name is Pete Smucker. I am an associate professor of music at the Stetson School of Music in Deland, Florida. I'm also the director of music theory here. And my uh, essay is titled Administering Pedagogy, Navigating the Institutional Impacts of a Changing Theory Curriculum. Hi, my name is Chelsea Burns. I'm an assistant professor of music theory at the University of Texas at Austin. And my contribution to the colloquy is about uh, just the difficulties and challenges associated with making curricular change. Hi, everyone. My name is Kate Pekinskis. I'm a visiting assistant professor in music at Amherst College in Amherst, Mass. And my uh, contribution for the colloquy is titled Decentering the Corral in Undergraduate Music Theory Courses, Why and How? Hi, I'm Bill O'Hara. I'm an assistant professor at Gettysburg College, and my contribution to the colloquy is called Neo-Ramanian Theory as Voice-Leading Pedagogy, and it details some of the things that I do in my Theory 3 class uh, with Neo-Ramanian Theory. I'm Marcy Pearson. I teach uh, music theory at the University of Pittsburgh, and um, my contribution is called Reconsidering the Role of Voice-Leading in the Undergraduate Theory Curriculum. And it's about kind of um, how we think about voice leading and how that plays into the more general concept of kind of curricular overhaul and corrals. Yeah, my name is William Van Geest. I am uh, finishing off a PhD at the University of Michigan. Um, my contribution is called The Corral in American Music Theory, a Corpus Study of Leading Textbooks. Great. Well, we again, thank you so much for joining us on our largest Note Doctors episode of all time. And so we're gonna start off just with uh, talking about a little bit how this group came together. And so how, you know, how, how do six music theorists come together in agreement on something? And, and how do you start that off? Well, I can chime in, this is Pete. And uh, you know, we, this actually started years ago, uh, certainly pre-pandemic. Um, a lot of us knew each other, actually, and we're, we're colleagues together at University of Chicago, uh, myself and Marcy and Kate and Chelsea, um, but we also knew Bill uh, just as friends and, you know, through conferences and, and that sort of thing. Um, but this, I, I think back to maybe, and you guys can correct me, 2016 or 2017 or so, we were all sort of either finishing up our graduate studies or about to go into the 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 job market and and getting sort of our, our first jobs and that sort of thing and and we we wanted to stay connected we we're like oh we're all leaving each other and you know how, how do we want to stay connected and we decided to kind of do this before zoom got big we we wanted to meet up and and decided let's talk about pedagogy talk about our jobs and and we could commiserate a little bit with each other but also we just we ended up picking topics and so we met every i don't know what couple of months or every two or three months or so and and we just talked about grading and our new jobs and you know well what did you do and we shared resources and and there were other people in, involved in this too there was you know anywhere from i don't six to eight to ten maybe at this some people came and went um and then i'm going to give credit to marcy i think marcy's like hey I met this guy, William. He's got this really cool project he's working on. 
uh, and so William joined us then also, and it was through that, it was sort of one of the topics we were wanting to talk about William's project. And I think after that, so this would have been 2018, probably around there. And uh, we said, you know, maybe this would be a cool panel to pitch at one of the conferences. And so uh, those of us, the six of us, we, we thought, oh, we, we could maybe put something together and, and contribute. So we decided to put that together. And then I don't remember whose idea it was. I think it was Marcy again. I'm going to give you credit, Marcy, was to say, well, we, well, we need a respondent. Uh, and uh, and so we we thought of um, Dr. Jennifer Snodgrass, uh, her her textbook, I think it just recently come out. Uh, and we thought that would be great if we could get her on board. And she she was enthusiastic and said yes. And so that was kind of everything that led up to uh, how we got to pitching this to to SMT. If it's okay, um, if I interject on that, just to clarify one point, I think um, the impetus um, behind the SMT panel was, first of all, to represent um, what this group had been doing, namely just getting together and talking about um, pedagogy, pedagogical issues, um, and particularly like supporting um, scholars at, you know, in, in the early stages of, of teaching. Um, and it was, you know, and just saying what's, what's sort of possible, um, you know, we hope more people do this sort of thing. Um, and then we said, okay, what sort of topic will we choose? And, you know, among the various topics that we had discussed in, you know, in that context, um, Corral rose to the surface probably because we have this snappy title. Um, and so it was, you know, I, I think, I, I just wanted to represent that aspect of this group because I think it's a really valuable thing that was going on, you know, this meeting on a more or less monthly basis to, um, to just uh, support each other and sharpen our pedagogical chops. Yeah, just as like a quick sort of sampling of the topics that we discussed, we had we would try to have a focus each month, something on, you know, popular music and how you work with that in your curriculum or, you know, integrating versus separating out or fugues and whether you teach them and how to think about that in relation to thinking, teaching counterpoint topics like that. Right. So Corral was one of the topics that we that we had come through. This is Chelsea talking. Yeah, one of the points that I think came across in a lot of your papers was if you want to move outside of the textbook. What do you do at that point? What resource do you draw from and to draw on your support network? I know Paul and Jen and I have definitely done similar things. So it's good. It's really healthy for the field to see these kinds of things going on, especially when we get outside of, of the books. I think it's great. Yeah, I found that to be invaluable just because I certainly had my ideas and some of us had common experiences, maybe at, at University of Chicago, but, you know, Bill and William and some of the others, they just brought different ideas and whatever schools we ended up being, we all go to different types of schools, different types of institutions. And so, yeah, to anybody listening, find a group of friends and get together and do this. You know, it's been really, really great for us. It's one of the things you sort of miss after grad school, too. You go from being immersed in this to you might, you know, either you're starting a new job and you're like the new person or you're starting a job like some of us are at institutions where we're like the theorist or maybe one of two theorists or something like that. Um, so it's it's really nice to kind of carry that through. And I looked up and uh, I think we can give some credit to Chelsea specifically with the fugue thing. That's one of the earliest emails I can find. And Pete sends an email to all of us saying like, hey, I think we should like, we should all, you know, get together. And what if we, you know, wouldn't it be great to talk about things like that regularly? She got this really great discussion going on Facebook. Like, let's continue it. I was just going to say that the beginning of this podcast is really similar because that's how we, we started by just talking and we would 
present in one of Paul's pedagogy classes. And that's what that's when we realized it's so helpful to talk to colleagues about how you teach and what you teach and why and all of those things and keeping that regular, that is a regular part of what you do is such a gift and a really helpful tool to have. And if I can add one more thing to what Bill was saying is that even in grad school, this is kind of tagging on to Levy and Handel's point is that you didn't get the proper preparation to teach film music in all your classes and popular music examples and music musical, musical examples outside the canon. I mean, we have to rely on each other in that point, even when you're in graduate school, in my opinion. Um, but that's just, that's a little bit more nuanced, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I um, actually, my PhD is in composition. It's not in theory. And so many, um, you know, many jobs out there are for theory comp or comp theory, or it's a, a part of the work. And I have always really loved, you know, teaching theory and, and thinking about composing from an analytical perspective, but definitely really benefited, especially in the early days, but, but continue to benefit from this wonderful group of people when I'm just like, Hey, I have to teach a course on such and such, or I have to teach a lesson on this. And I have no materials. And like, you know, we never talked about this in the, the th sort of thread or current of my practices as a composer. So getting some, um, some extra support there also was really helpful. And, and even in this group sort of drawing on our different areas of expertise outside of theory pedagogy has been really helpful. You know, Chelsea is also, you know, heavily leaning into musicology. And so thinking about those influences also helps us expand and challenge, you know, our space. Well, Kate, I'm here for you with the PhD in composition, so we have to we have to stick together because we're, we're we're we do well in theory, but there are some things that were just like I didn't learn that. <laughs> I know how to write atonal music and uh, experimental things, but how does counterpoint work again? It's funny how <laughs> how little counterpoint training you get in a doctor with composition sometimes. Yeah, definitely, or that we're utilizing it in a very very different way than mm -hmm. 16th and 18th century traditions. Exactly, exactly. So let's turn to um, some of the essays. So we'll, we'll just start with the first essay um, in, the, in the article, and that's by uh, William, and that's where uh, you're on your corpus study on leading textbooks and the use of the corral. And so it's a really fascinating article, and we could, we could spend this whole time talking about kind of what you found in there, but we'll kind of hit the highlights of it. But what were some of the most kind of interesting things that you found uh, in your investigation of the textbooks in regards to the use or even like overuse of corrals? Yeah, um, yeah, there, there was um, sort of a lot uh, um, packed in there, at least from my perspective. I'm, um, uh, you know, it, this is sort of the um, a, a nugget version of um, what what uh, sort of triggered my dissertation. So, um, yeah, I think there's a lot there. Um, so, in response to your question, I think I would say, um, well, first of all, uh, you know, the use overuse thing. Um, you know, my my goal in the um, essay is is not uh, to be you know particularly prescriptive. I do hope that people um, who read it will say, "Oh, this is interesting stuff." You know, how will I change my pedagogy, um, reinforce or or modify, say, um, based on on you know what I what I uh, learned from this. Um, in terms of interesting findings, I would say um, it really struck me how um, the corral permeates. Um, our music theoretical instruction, at least if these textbooks are in any indication, which is sort of the, the point of the corpus study. 
Um, so, you know, we, uh, if you look at the um, examples that um, authors will, will pull, um, there's just a, you know, a fairly high proportion of them um, being what they call corrals. And among those, you know, tons of uh, Bach's four-part uh, corral harmonizations. Um, you know, we also use them to illustrate, uh, we, we use, you know, stuff corral adjacent um, uh, to illustrate, you know, principles of harmony and voice leading. Um, we assign corral harmonization for exercises, right? Um, so, so I guess all of this sort of led me to, to realize um, there's, you know, a, the corral in music theory that's, that's essentially specific to music theory and, and related to what everyone else calls corral, but, but its own thing, you know? Um, so if you, if you say the word corral to an American music theorist, um, they'll understand something very specific um, or, or a number of things actually um, uh, by the term that just is, is you know, essentially different from, um, from the rest of the field. And, you know, I tried to, um, to highlight that in my essay by means of, uh, you know, the reference to the Grove Dictionary, which is, you know, the, the main dictionary, um, English language dictionary for the field. Um, so, yeah, to sort of... Um, enumerate the parts of, or, you know, sort of um, uh, analyze what's all bundled up in that concept. I think that was, that's, that's uh, you know, again, what, what triggered my dissertation. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the sort of, uh, you know, the, how big that, um, that concept is and how attached it is to some of the um, deepest music theoretical commitments um, of our, our field practitioners. That was really striking to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's just interesting how you mentioned if uh, an aria or a choral work or other works that have text or an art song, they will include the text, the translations, all these things. Uh, but that chorale is not treated in the same way. It's treated as almost like this abstract object that has no history almost. And it makes me think of, I was thinking of, uh, it was a video or interview I saw. It was basically talking about how um, there was a strange voice leading thing in this Bach chorale. And this one student was like, well, I know why that is because the lyric of that is, you know, is crucified or something. And that's why there's that weird dissonance. Um, but he knew the student knew that because he was a Lutheran. We grew up in a Lutheran church. Whereas, you know, for most students who don't come from that tradition, they're not going to have that insight. They see these as these kind of very abstract things. So can, can you talk a little bit about how, how we've abstracted these chorales and where, what would help, how would a more robust understanding of where they come from and what they do help us? Yeah, so, um, you know, um, as you say, it, it is sort of striking how, um, uh, how chorales are, um, you know, dealt, sort of idiosyncratic, dealt with idiosyncratically uh, compared with, um, with other repertoire. They, you know, uh, it's just sort of inconsistent. Um, and so I, I focus on on Bach's uh, four part choral harmonizations and how and their visual um, presentation and these textbooks, which um, you know you can find some common themes um, across them. So um, you know, first of all, um, I, I you know mentioned the extraction from a larger musical work, right? Um, to be sure, there's there's a whole lot of these four part harmonizations by Bach that um, we don't know the origins of, but uh, for those we do know the origins of. Um, they're uh, often, you know, extracted from, uh, say, a cantata or a passion or something like that, um, and they play, a, you know, dramatic role. Uh, you know, uh, they connect with all, all sorts of themes um, in the cantata, 
and of course they're liturgical and, and that sort of thing. And um, and that's not how they're you know presented in these books. They're they're just you know it's a chorale, you know, and and especially for those authors that um, identify them according to a number, that number refers to the edition, right? And the edition collects all these chorales, sort of extracted from these larger works. Um, but yeah, another aspect that you mentioned um, is the um, is the lack of uh, text in the score, um, uh, you know, on, on these examples. And, you know, there's, you know, a fair amount sort of um, uh, connected with um, a, a text that's in a score. First of all, it simply indicates that the thing is sung, you know, that's it's for chorus. Um, second of all, that it's German, right? If you're including the German text, so it gives a sort of cultural um, connection and, and third of all, if you you know can decipher the the German or if there's a translation um, appended, then you get a sense that it's liturgical, right? Um, when you remove that that text from the score, all that sort of disappears, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, the other aspect that I mentioned is is compacting it onto um, onto two staves. Um, you know, so if if you open, for example, the Neue Bachas Ausgabe. Um, you'll find, you know, uh, the chorale settings at the end of cantata, say, on, on four separate staves, which is pretty conventional, right, for choral music. Um, when you drop them onto two staves like that and you omit the text and anything else that suggests, you know, this deeper context, um, like you mentioned, um, it's, it's sort of unclear what it is, right? Two staves is, is common for keyboard music, and, of course, there's tons of keyboard music as well in these, in these textbooks. So it would be easy to think this is a keyboard piece, although it's the texture, musical texture is quite unidiomatic for the, the keyboard. So it sort of occupies this, this strange, um, ambiguous place. Is it is it instrumental music? Is it vocal music? Um, you know, I think it's particularly um, interesting when you put side by side how these chorales are uh, presented visually. If you compare that to um, our representations of, of, um, of you know, the, the, the texture, the musical texture that we use to represent uh, principles of harmony and voice leading and like they're pretty similar as I, I think it's um you know one of the examples in the end of my book and so like I don't know it's 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 awfully um awfully, awfully remarkable how much they resemble each other and and I you know I raised the point that I don't I don't think it's coincidental you know we call that that um illustration texture chorale style you know um so it feels sort of like mushy between um, how we present this idiosyncratic visual presentation of chorales and this um, this this demonstration texture. Um, I don't know if that, that gets at your your question a little bit. I, I think it does because you bring up that really interesting point of how they're kind of mutually reinforce each other. Like this is how a chorale looks, and this is how these these kind of harmonic examples look, and they look exactly the same. So they're kind of it's almost like the authors are. You know, validating their own their own writing uh, because it's it's so close to what the chorales look like uh, by Bach and so it, it's I, I never really thought about that but it's it's a really kind of interesting thing when you point that out like wow they're like that's the same like the Bach chorale the setup is the same as we how we have these abstracted voice leading uh, examples and then vice versa right yeah yeah, and so as we kind of wrap up with that, what auth- what reasons do authors give for using chorales to teach voice leading? I think we all kind of have reasons that okay, you know, why why it would be the case, but in textbooks because that's where you know students encounter these things, and um, so oftentimes textbooks are going to 
explain the importance of them to, to students. Um, what, what are the reasons to teach the chorale? Yeah, um, so there's there's a host of um, of different um, appeals that authors make, and like I think um, sort of curiously uh, cu curious number uh, of them. Um, so one of them is just um, you know this is the way it's always been done. You know this, this is this is how we teach uh, music theory in this tradition, right? Um, another one is um, you know an appeal to sort of um, musical style or musical genre, like. Um, other, there's a lot of, uh, you know, music um, that is in four parts, string quartets, you know, or, or uh, yeah, other choral music, right? Um, another one is this sort of what I call compositional norm, that is to say in the sense of um, composers compose this way, even if it doesn't end up in, in four parts, you know, this is the way, you know, this is the way people compose. Maybe our composers uh, around the table here can, can speak to that. Um, there's also like appeal to biological norms, like well, men and women, and you know, uh, two parts each, and you know, um, also appeal to the biology of the voice, um, what the voice is capable of, um, you know. So there's a, a variety of things um, like that, and um, I don't know. Sometimes I wonder. Sometimes I wonder whether uh, there's a sort of anxiety expressed in that, like, you know, that authors realize to a certain extent how much they rely on chorales and it sort of bothers them, right? And, you know, they try to appeal uh, to, to, to justify um, why they do so. And I don't know, are they grasping for straws? I'm not sure. Um, but uh, I, I do find, like I say, I find the, the variety and um, the strength of the appeal, uh, you know, intriguing. Can I just interject one one thing here? Um, I loved Willie what you said of the like, oh, composers. Maybe this is sort of why or how they compose in this direction. And I think it's really interesting working with undergraduate composers in particular. They're often really preoccupied by harmony and harmonic progression. And I hadn't really thought about it until you just said this, but it sort of yields an interesting chicken or egg moment. I think. And I can only speak from my experience in, in um, you know, studio, undergraduate studios and composition, but I spend a lot of time trying to um, encourage students to explore creative work from a place that doesn't originate with harmony. Um, and I wonder if that comes from, if some of that is coming from, you know, how we're thinking about introducing undergraduates to music theory. Yeah, and even if, um, you know, we look at the very beginning, right, of our, of the colloquy with the, uh, the anecdote of this, the poor student who thought, well, look, you know, we learn, uh, we learn, you know, principles of harmony and voice leading um, based on this four-part homophonic notionally vocal, vocal thing. So, um, so if I want to harmonize something, that's the way I'm going to do it, right? Like, is there any other way, right? And of course, uh, the instructor in our anecdote has to has to sort of walk things back a little bit, right? So, um, so yeah, I think this is a really really common thing. Yeah, and even tagging on to that, you make a great point that even some examples that are not Bach chorales are reduced to Bach chorales, as if that's a way of seeing through to the you know the composer's vision or something you know that it's not even a chorale but it's like made into a chorale and then you have this even further kind of abstracting um into into abstract models i know a lot of the recordings um in the late book are like that you'll play it and i think oh that wasn't the right one it was just a chorale but then i'm like oh wait a minute that was the 
and that kind of represented the, the voice leading or something of, of the example. And it wasn't even a corral that I'm looking at in the text. So yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic point. That's, that's one of the places that I, I find things get really interesting. Uh, I'll, I'll stop talking in a sec, but you know, I, I, that's the, the, the topic of musical structure, right? And um, it's something you find in most of the textbooks that I survey um, that uh, this demonstration texture, um, you know, it's no accident that, that we use this, this four-part homophonic notionally vocal texture because on some level we think it represents tonal music, right? This is, this is like a, a more real version or a more essential version of music. So we can, we can take a piece with any number of parts, um, whether more or, or fewer than, um, than four, and we turn it into a, you know, a more essential version of it and we say, oh, this is this is the structure of this piece, you know, and we've accepted that as as you know completely legitimate. And I I, I definitely don't. Um, well, I'll say this: I, I it seems like it does have explanatory power. It wouldn't have held on as it does um, if it didn't have some explanatory power. Although I do get concerned that um, you know what what repertoire does this sort of legitimize or normalize um, because it. It explains, you know, that structure, the model explains repertoire in helpful ways. And what repertoire does it exclude, for example, right? And and even, you know, just to be so focused on 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 pitch to this extent, you know, what um what what are the consequences of that for for what we're passing on to our students? If you don't mind me jumping in on this, just the way I, one of the things I really this is Chelsea. One of the things I really love about Williams' work on this is that he really centers this one structure and kind of helps us see all kinds of ways that it reiterates the the kinds of problems that are being addressed uh, sort of urgently in the field right now, right? And so I think all of us in this group at some point or another have said, well, this feels like just talking about the corral in some ways feels too small. Like we have too many things we need to be thinking about in more thoroughgoing ways in the curriculum, in the field. Like in the it, while we've been talking here about these issues of natural representation, there's been some discussion in the chat about issues of like the trans voice, but also questions of like the canon and all kinds of things. Um, but I think actually one of the things that really works well about the colloquy um, is the way in which having this one very focused touch point allows us to radiate out with all of these questions that that sort of permeate the rest of our work as well. Um, so it provides some focus to the discussion, but but our concerns are are related to these larger field-wide concerns. So I think that's absolutely true. And I experienced that as a reader. So, you know, you all wrote these articles and you've had a lot of discussion about them leading up to this. But as I was reading it, thinking about just this one object that we use, we do use quite a bit and they show up in our texts quite a bit. And I was thinking about how it's not really the way they appear is not really corral style. It's hymn style, really. And I grew up in, you know, because hymns are written that way on two staves and, you know, with this very sort of strict structure I grew up in a church with like a really rich singing tradition. That's how I learned to improvise harmony and all of those things. And I, I had a moment of like a chicken or egg moment while I was reading the articles thinking, am I a music theorist? Because I learned harmony through hymns because I got to college and experienced like I got to music theory and was like, well, all of this makes sense. Why is everyone so confused? This all makes perfect sense because that was essentially how I was trained in many ways leading up to that point, even while I could, as a horn player, be like, but in orchestra, we don't do this. And in band, we don't really do this, right? So 
I really experienced that through the article, that feeling of like, you're right, it excludes rhythm in a lot of ways. Rhythms are very simple in chorale structures, hymn structures. It excludes almost even non-chord tones in a lot of ways. Suspensions are very prevalent, maybe passing tones, but lots of other things are very uncommon in those structures. So there's so much that it leaves out and, th- and those things just kind of ripple out from, <laughs> from there. As you start to realize them, you're like, oh, and this, and this, and this. So I appreciated that a lot. Yeah, totally. Maybe one of those things would be voice leading. That's probably connected very closely, which brings me to Marcy, the second essay. And the colloquy, uh, really enjoyed reading what you what you put together. And you're reconsidering the role of voice leading. So can you talk to us about some of some of your main points and share them and we can discuss that as well? Yeah. Um so yeah, but I mean, so much of what kind of I'm doing, uh, like William's work is so foundational to so much of what I do in this too, because he he just like establishes kind of like a basic, you know, that corrals are prevalent and stuff like that. And so, um, yeah, I was sort of, um, I in our kind of presentation, I presented on something different, but then in the responses to our presentation at SMT, um, I just like, I kept, seeing kind of voice leading come up is like, okay, well, we can get rid of the corral, but like voice leading is obviously like the sacred thing that we shouldn't, you know, that is important, indubitably, you know, no, no, uh, argument there. And, and I was kind of like, wait though, like, is, is it, I mean, you know, um, and so that's kind of what that, uh, where that question came from. Um, and yeah, so I'm thinking about, um, I'm thinking about what we mean when we talk about voice leading and uh, what when we talk about voice leading, we're almost always talking about voice leading in the style of Bach and the style of Bach chorales, um, you know, the kind of things that have been extrapolated from Bach chorales. Um, and uh, and this is, you know, I make the point in the essay that this is like a really common that like if you look up um, voice leading in Grove, it sends you to part writing. So these things are like completely interlinked. Um, Kind of conceptually in the field of a music theory and, and i find like i'm actually teaching a counterpoint course right now and i'm trying to train myself out of talking about good voice leading and just talking about like box style voice leading you know like um which is not natural for me it's like you know so ingrained in me that there's a kind of voice leading that is good and that is like bach um but then there's actually like a lot of music i like that doesn't <laughs> you know use that kind of voice leading at all um and so to call it good is actually you know there's a problem there i think um, so that's kind of like what the what I'm exploring in this essay. Yeah, that's a great point. I personally, maybe this is just me, but I like these five kind of ways you kind of put together this uh, spectrum continuum of, you know, if you are listening to this podcast and say, you know what, I'm sold. I want to decenter my teaching of the chorale and I want to do the following with voice leading. You kind of propose this kind of set of five kind of uh lines that you pass that you could pursue i guess um i thought that was really interesting maybe i thought you could share some of those because i think a lot of people listening to this it's going to resonate and they're going to say where do i go from here you know yeah um yeah so i I have these five ideas like and they are some of them are combinable some of them aren't and um i kind of like do a combination of a few of them but not all of them personally in my in my teaching 
Um, so the first one is to kind of teach, like, this is, I think, the most modest, but just like teach counterpoint without corrals, like kind of do two voice counterpoint, think about how voices move against each other without kind of like, yeah, putting it in this corral format, um, which I know uh, some people kind of focus more on two part writing and things like that. Um, the second idea is to postpone like box, I'm calling it box style voice leading just to be specific about what we're talking about. Um, so to postpone it until later in a curriculum. So I do this, like, uh, the students kind of learn, like, keyboard style with no parallel, you know, they don't worry about parallels and stuff like that until uh, theory three, <laughs> um, when we start talking about um, voice leading. So they just, uh, they learn, like, harmony. It, it gives us a lot more time in theory one to focus on harmony and cool, you know, chords and stuff like that, which I think is more widely useful for some of our students, some of whom only take theory one. Um, so that's the second idea is just, like, teach it later um, and maybe only to some students if you have like a modular curriculum or you know students can choose um, what they take. Uh, another option would be to teach it to teach box style voice leading comparatively so to be like this is one kind of voice leading like now let's look at this you know let's look at power chords and talk about what kind of voice leading that is and that that's also a you know good decision and, and meets the goals of you know both cultural and musical of the music that it's in. Um, so yeah, different logics, different musics, different logics of voice leading, kind of comparative analysis there. Um, the fourth idea is to um, teach voice leading more generally um, in a way that applies more broadly across different kinds of music. So if we're just talking about like fluency of voice, like, um, you know, having voices sort of like move mostly stepwise or something like that, that's like a pretty uh, more universal concept, not entirely, but more so. Um, and yeah, and, and we can talk about like what tendency tones are in different styles and how they behave. And so there's, there's kind of like looser, more generalizable uh, things to extract where we're still talking about voice leading, but in a more, in a broader sense. Um, and then the final idea is just to not teach voice leading at all. And I, I confess, I don't know exactly what this would look like. Um, I feel like voice leading is pretty important for triadic music. And I don't know of a music program that doesn't focus on triadic music. Um, maybe, you know, it, in the in the States, I don't know one, but, or in North America. But um, yeah, but th there could be kind of programs not focused on triadic music and, and so you know, I want to keep open the option of voice leading not being important in a particular context at all, just as kind of the, the limit case. Right, hot take. We love hot takes on here. I love it. <laughs> I've been also rethinking just like the phrase model. You know, I used to say on your composition project, if you're stuck, well, think about the phrase model. But now I just asked them a question. Does, did you follow the phrase model, why or why not explain? And I just kind of let them talk about what they did and kind of understand it. But then like, you know, I didn't follow the phrase model. I wanted to do planing of diminished chords because it was a lightsaber battle between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. And that's just what came to mind. You know what I mean? And some of them wrote that. And I thought that was really cool. You know, it's great, you know? Um, yeah, it's a real yeah. difference. I think like uh, the... So the theory, I, I went to Oberlin and, and the theory curriculum there, you know, assumed that we all engaged with classical music to a large degree. And so assume that these things we were hearing were familiar, you know, um, like, you know, that we'd like somehow know kind of voice, good voice leading, even though we were like really bad at it in theory class, like we could learn it, it would make sense. But I think increasingly we can't 
you know, some students like come in thinking about lightsabers, some come in thinking about, you know, this or that. And, and so you can't assume that like something will sound right to students. You have to like do the work to play enough of the kind of music for them <laughs> if you really want them to learn like a particular kind of music. It, and if I could jump in just really quickly on this, I mean, one of the, with, with Marcy's um, essay, which is great and sort of opening up this spectrum, you know, as, as you're calling it. And, and I think one thing that I, I, I think is happening um, is that there's just more recognition of, of, of the, the types of institutions, the types of places that are more accepting of different things rather than sort of assuming it's going to be this one thing if you're going to be classically trained. Um, and and, and my, my hope is that this kind of continues. So there is this, I don't know what the right word for this is, just sort of a not a flattening or a or globalization or a, a, a all encompass ecumenical. I don't know what sort of like everything is welcome and is 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 happening. Um, and it's not that if you're on this end of the spectrum, that's less good or bad than anywhere else. And I think as Gredge pluralistic, yeah, fantastic, uh, all sorts of words we could come up with. Um, so, so that's one of the things I think what Marcy I think opens up really nicely uh, and and institutions need to, uh, I think, think about that. Um, e even if an institution is defined in a certain way, understanding that there are all these other equally viable possibilities and models for, for curriculum, I think is, is, is good. And, you know, preparing our students for the reality of the world they enter, which is that like the, you know, interpretation is less and less of kind of what musicians do, like interpretation being sort of like reading music that already exists so that being less and less of the kind of professional like goals or the professional endpoints of our of our students and i can't remember if it was your article it maybe here's marcy where you mentioned how if if this if this voice leading is so natural and so the way it should be why is it so difficult for students to do it <laughs> I thought that yeah. was a great point like yeah if it's so natural and obvious why is it one of the hardest things for students to even do <laughs> right. There's some kind of disconnect there, right? Like of it being this ideal, like beautiful structure, you know, that that just undergirds everything we listen to and it being like, you know, my students in theory three still not. Yeah, like, <laughs> I'm still not able or, you know, students will go through two years of theory and, and not be able to, um, you know, and, and not catch the parallel fist. They won't hear them. They won't see them. So what does that what does that mean? At the same time, I, I also wonder whether one of the motivations um, for including, you know, things like like uh, voice leading and and or including isn't isn't quite right. Uh, building our, our, our curricula um, around voice leading in harmony is that um, it's easy to grade. It's easy to say yes, no, you know. Um, even when when Marcy mentioned her fifth um, fifth option, you know, like don't work on voice leading. I don't know what that would look like. Um, I feel like yeah, that's kind of the problem, right? Like um, it's 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 easy, you know, it lends itself to our institutions, right? And the attitude that we, um, th that our institutions are founded on, right? Um, and I don't know whether we're doing our students a service, you know, uh, if it's unnatural, if what, we, what we're teaching them is, is so difficult for them to, to uh, sort of get a handle on. But on the other hand, uh, you know, it's, it's, that makes e grading easy, you know, you can lay out a rubric and everyone knows what they're getting, getting points off for, you know? Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if we should be comfortable with that, right? And and again, what possibilities we're sort of 
um, ruling out in, in the process. A lot a great, of the points that folks have been saying really, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Jen. Well, I was about to say that's a great transition to your article. So you yeah. know, if you want to talk about some of the challenges of making curricular changes like that. You know, sure. I mean, I, I think a lot of the, the points that my colleagues have been making are exactly the ones that I make in my in my contribution, which are just that there are there are so many challenges, right? It might depend on how much freedom you have in your curriculum. It might depend on how concerned you are about the what you uh, what you're not sure they might face in their graduate placement exams. Um, it might be about how much freedom you have with your colleagues and coordination. Um, the one that I've been thinking about the most is is exactly the thing that Marcy was talking about, and and also Pete to some extent this this issue of like what we're actually preparing students to do. And I think um, that's the place that I feel actually kind of stuck at this point, just trying to think about it. It's, it's, it's like, a, I, I want to know what possibilities might exist for our students. And so part of that is, what are they actually doing when they come out? But that is, of course, shaped by what they've been taught to do. And so, like, I think um, considering, for example, like, what would it mean for a bassoon player to come out? without having gone through the track of, of learning the standard bassoon rep, but having learned something else, right? That what might they be able to teach future bassoon students, right? Like right now, all of it is of a piece that presumes a classical curriculum. And, and I don't mean to say like, we should be doing pop instead. I mean to say that I really genuinely would love to, to sort of think more, think bigger about what it means to be a musician. And if that's the case, what tools one might need to do that. And, and I think that requires not even like, not just the theory program and not just, you know, um, not just our own core curricula, but like, how do I communicate with that bassoon teacher? I mean, I don't mean to single out the bassoon teacher. I really like the bassoon teacher at UT, but, um, but anybody, any performance um, faculty member to help get them on board as well, to think more broadly about how to, what it means to educate a, 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 an undergraduate student in a curriculum or a graduate student in a curriculum and, 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 and what they might be able to go forth and do. Um, and I think that that remains sort of an unaddressed issue for me. Um, and, and some of that can be figured out by, by talking to, to our graduates, but I, I, I want to do some other thinking about it as well. Um, and I wish, I, like, I would love to do that work in collaboration with folks across between performance and academic studies um, to get some more cross-fertilization there. I don't know if that quite answered your question. <laughs> there are a lot of challenges, is what I mean to say, and they're big. And some of them are these textbook issues, right? Like, if you want to make a change, there aren't like a whole lot of alternatives. And also maybe the faculty in the other semesters use the textbook a lot. So the students come through pre really prepared to use that textbook. Mm -hmm. And then you start saying, oh, but we're not gonna use those kinds of structures anymore. It sort of um, can alienate them from what they've understood to be a reference material. Um, it's, a, you know, it takes retraining for us. There are all kinds of ways that it's hard and ways that it is unequal in terms of labor because so much of core curriculum is taught by um, untenured folks, uh, non-ladder folks, um, contingent faculty, graduate assistants, right? Yeah. Um, it's a lot of work for I everybody. Really appreciated that you brought in that element. Um, we had an earlier podcast guest who mentioned like, you guys have talked a lot about incorporating popular music and that's fantastic, but I'm a contingent faculty member. I only have so much time. I'm working other jobs too. 
And I already know these examples. I already know this music and it's serving my students fairly well. And that is something to consider, you know, um, how many adjuncts and like you said, teaching fellows and people with really heavy loads are carrying the core curriculum, really, <laughs> you know, I'm lucky to be in a situation where that's less the case, but uh, when it comes to the written curriculum, myself and my other full-time colleague teach all the four semesters um, between us. And so that gives us a lot of flexibility and a lot of kind of ability to make change fairly easily, but you're absolutely right that most people are not in that situation. And it's definitely something to think about because I think when we get so excited about curricular change, we forget about the aspects that you mentioned. Like we have colleagues who might not be excited or we have a textbook that students have already paid for, or we have, you know, there's all of these other elements that you have to think about. And for me, it's more that it's a long game. You have to, you have to change things our curriculum has dramatically changed in the nearly 10 years that I've been where at DBU where I teach right now. Um, but it has happened really slowly across a long period of time. And as you mentioned, you have to plan for incremental change and you have to plan for things to be retooled and restructured again. And, you know, it's not a straight line, not at all. Yeah. I was just, was going to say, you know, going off of what Chelsea was saying that I feel like in a lot of ways, Chelsea's paper and Pete's paper are really central to the big picture of this group. I mean, it's it's been about two years since we did this panel initially, and it's something that I'm sure we've all continued thinking about. Um, but one of the things that I feel like I see over and over is the need to really be strategic and to really kind of talk with our colleagues in other areas. Because I think in, you know, in those two years, a lot of music theorists have spent a lot of time thinking about this, but you also need to talk to your applied people. You need to talk to your ensembles. You know, you really, I, I think that it would be really great if, if we saw more departments and schools of music in the next few years, really looking at the big picture and asking that really tough question that Chelsea asks, which is like, what do, what do we actually want our students to know and why, and what are we preparing them for? Even as we agree, you know, we want to do more of this and less of that in theory, we, you know, in a way, we're kind of preaching to the choir in terms of all the people listening to this podcast and on this panel that we're all, in, you know, engaged in thinking about how to do this differently. But, but we also need to have those conversations and the other areas of our schools need to have those conversations with us. I'm lucky to work in a place where we have been doing that for several years as a full faculty, but there's also only seven of us on the full-time music faculty and um, and we're fairly like-minded about these things. And, I, and we recognize often how fortunate that is because it's not the case all the time everywhere. We have applied colleagues who will ask things like, are you doing okay in theory? It's really important. Or how's music history going? You have to know that stuff. You know, so we get, we have a, a very supportive group of us, but that's not always the case. And sometimes people just take longer to come around too. I think the question of what our students need was really central to your article, Chelsea. And I appreciated that you don't just say like, well, clearly they need this. It's such a complex problem. And we don't know. We don't know the answer. We have no idea what they need. Yeah, I think there's still this, this operation of like, well, for, for a traditional conservatory student who's headed maybe to an orchestra or something. And I think, well, how many of our traditional students are headed to orchestras, right? Like maybe... Maybe they're headed to something that is orchestra adjacent in some way, right? I mean, I don't mean to say like 
throw concert music out the window, but it's not entirely clear to me that that's necessarily the normative path that we ought to be preparing students for. Um, you know, I think about, you know, being in Texas, I think about all of the, um, uh, you know, all of the marching bands <laughs> and all of that rep and how that rep bears um, some relationship to the music we're teaching them, but not necessarily. And, and also, you know, just thinking in my specific program, they don't, they take a course in which they learn about transposing instruments and everything after they're done with their core theory courses. So when you want to say, well, I would love to incorporate more band rep. Okay. You better be ready to make your own reductions of all of it. And so that they can read it because they, you know, the instruments, you know, the students can't read all the transposing score pieces. Like there's, it's just like another thing that just needs to be like, okay, well, if I want to do that, then I need to rethink the, the upper level labeling of this and this administration, you know, in a, in a, in a university that has a building dedicated just to keys it just can feel overwhelming to try to handle administration you know it's just just massive in some schools yeah i like to i often think of it like and this gets to pizza say too but it's like grassroots organizing almost right like you have to kind of like find a buddy and agree with them and then find like another buddy and then find like a buddy like sub area and and kind of like build it up from there which i think like yeah pizza say kind of addresses like how to do that but it's not like a top down thing and it's it's not something everybody can just like sit down at a faculty meeting with like 30 people and just like hash it out right you have to kind of like build up these structures from the bottom and not everybody has the kind of uh, privilege to do that Something Chelsea mentioned a little bit earlier um, made me think of another, yet another pressure I think that, that comes to bear here. Um, I was chatting with one of the um, authors of one of the, the textbooks uh, in, in, in my corpus study, and they were saying, um, you know, I can't remember how we got on the topic, but they said, oh yeah, you know that chapter on such and such, um, you know, little, little harmonic progression or whatever, you know, the publishers insisted that we put that in there, you know, because every other textbook has that, right? And, and so, you know, um, and I don't think that was an isolated, you know, uh, incident, right? Um, and also just like the length of these textbooks, right? I think there's a lot of pressure on these publishers to, um, to provide an alternative that's actually pretty close to what's already, you know, status quo, right? And so we have this, yeah, this, uh, Chelsea's doing a circle uh, uh, in, in her screen, um, you know, this, this, this very tight, uh, yeah, circle, reinforcing, self-reinforcing circle of, um, of uh, reproducing the same stuff that we did last year, the same textbook as the ones that are out there already. So, um, yeah, the, the pressures are, are, I think, enormous, you know, and from coming from all sides. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of all sides, Pete, your article, your essay really <laughs> shows all the other sides that we need to think about. Um, and kind of thinking of all the other con constituencies that we have, we've been talking about a little bit of the students, what students needs are, and a little bit of what our fellow faculties, but even thinking about the administration and all these big picture ideas and talk to us a little bit about kind of the things that we need to be thinking about. If like, as you open your article, it's like, you've decided you're going to do it, right? Well, you know, going to put a wet blanket on us uh, <laughs> and say it's too hard. But what are the other things that we need to think about? Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of this has already come out in in our discussion, you know, in, in Chelsea's essay and, and and some and Bill's points and and everything. It's 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 uh, it has a lot to do with uh, what are you focused on? We've talked a lot about the students already. You know, where are they coming from? Where do we want them to go? Uh, and and that difficulty. 
And, um, you know, Chelsea talks already, we've already talked about the, the faculty uh, issues and workloads and, and fostering those um, relationships, I think, are very important. Uh, and I, if, if anything, my essay is just talking about, uh, think about all, all of the connections. You know, if you have, a, have, have the one thing in the middle and just how many, how big is your web of, of things that you have to consider? And, uh, and how important it is to communicate those, those things. And so with the administration, it's just that in some ways, I, I'm not an administrator. I don't want to be an administrator. I, I want to go in. I just want to teach my class and enjoy things with, you know, with my students and their learning. Um, but um, you, you want to know how really you are fitting in into the institution and, and, and creating important relationships, healthy relationships with all of these constituents and like your, with your administration, I think is, is very important. So the one thing I mentioned, and I totally, this is from one of my administrators, he, he often talks about sort of, and I remember we as a group were, were talking about this, well, there's like a hundred foot view and a thousand foot view and a, and a 10,000 foot view. And, and we were debating, well, maybe it should be a hundred thousand foot view or a 9,000 foot view. And we were, we were debating the, the, the scale to which we we're trying to get perspectives. And, and in some ways, my essay isn't about, isn't about Corral at all. It's, it's more general, right? It's just about curricular issues and curricular changes. And maybe this is just one thing. But yeah, if you go in, and I think if you're an enthusiastic, I'm fresh out of grad school, I'm just going to just throw everything out and start from scratch. And, and, and there's just so many things you need to, need to consider, like uh, you're forcing a change on your uh, senior uh, faculty colleagues who are going to be writing your letters for tenure, right? Uh, there's so many things like that to, to consider. So um, that's kind of what my essay is, is getting at. And, and more than anything, it's it's talk. You know, I, I, I would encourage us to not keep our doors closed. I would encourage you, if, if your colleagues' doors are open, go in and talk to them, uh, including your administrators. And uh, you just never know what may crop up um, in in those in those conversations. I know that's easier said than done sometimes. With uh, we, we tend to stay focused, and we're often overworked uh, anyway, um, in, in in some ways. But but making the effort and maybe put, putting in a little bit more work to well, what would the domino? If we if I knock this one domino over what what is it going to what is it going to produce or if i start pulling this thread on on a sweater right is there a point where it's like okay i can cut this thread off and the sweater is still intact right the curriculum is still good you know everything everybody has their place the sleeves are still there or if i start pulling this thread and everything falls apart well that that's something that's maybe a weird analogy but i i, I think that works right no, I, I think that makes makes total sense because one of the the, the issues with SATB writing or this corral writing that we do have to think about is with our students and you know, the re recruitment of them and then the placement, right? You mentioned, um, you know, placements for our graduating students who've wanted to go to grad, who uh, go on to grad school and making sure that, you know, we're a school that other schools aren't saying, oh no, this person's from the S <laughs> XYZ State University. They don't know their part writing, right? I mean, talk to us about things that we need to think about as related to those, those student issues. And SATB. 
Yeah. So, and I think this gets a little back, uh, a little bit back to what I, I mentioned a little bit earlier, just in terms of um, my, my hope is that there is more acceptance of the, the variety of of, uh, of institutions and, and where students are coming from. So I think if we if we think in terms of okay, we're going to have a, a curriculum that does not have any voice leading or or, or limits the this, the study of, of corral, um, then are we worried that oh well that may hinder uh, the their chances to get into a certain graduate school, or are we trying to say well now if 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 some institutions do that then no graduate entrance exams should now include voice leading or corral style harm harmonization. I don't think we should say either of those things. I, I think, I think, and we're an all undergraduate institution. So we think very much about placing students right in, into, into graduate programs. Um, but I think graduate entrance exams, um, if, if they're going to be adapted, they should be adapted in such a way that, 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 um, uh, meets students from the different types of places where, where they where they came from. I, I I don't think there needs to be any limiting uh, in terms of well, okay, this 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 brand new school has this amazing curriculum, but they don't do corral style part writing or whatever. Um, uh, then if you're at one of those uh, graduate uh, schools, you need to seriously consider. Well, maybe we need to change how we how we view students coming from that rather than dismissing them. One of the big things I've learned, I think, in thinking about this is you don't be dismissive. Don't be dismissive of your, of your students' needs, of your colleagues' needs. Um, and um, uh, I, I, th I think that's an important thing to, to keep in mind, I, I guess. So I don't know if that addresses totally with the with the students um, moving moving on, but, but I think don't be dismissive of, of a student that comes from any type of institution. Um, and so I, I, I think the graduate, the idea of graduate entrance exams, it shouldn't be a, oh, they should, they should assess corral part writing or not. I, I think that's, it, it, it needs to be something other than yes or no. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as the curriculums change, textbooks change, you know, who knows what's going to be on those, but I think that kind of open-handed kind of gracious attitude, I think is so helpful. And there are opportunities, as you mentioned if you reach out to those administrators for money, for, you know, if you're willing to ask, you know, if, if you're in a department or a school that wants innovation, wants to be more inclusive and diverse, there could actually be potential for assistance with that, right? Yeah. And, and this kind of gets to what Jen was saying too, about um, uh, the slow burn or the long game. I, I think that that's, that's very important and, and relationships take time. So, and, and those, as those relationships build, I think uh, talking with your colleague, well, what if we tried this? What if we altered this a little tiny bit and going to your administrators to say, I think we wanna try to do this. Uh, maybe there's something in place at your institution where you could get a little bit, bit of grant money or something to re do a curricular redesign. A lot of places have that, I think. Um, and, uh, and, and in terms of the, and this is me just, again, I encourage people to, like Jen, I think, do, do try to think long-term, try to think the long game, um, small incremental changes, but within those incremental changes, that actually gives you more and more opportunities to, to present those ideas to your faculty or to, to, to other departments. You know, if you wanna to try to get interdisciplinary ideas, 
you know, if you try to do everything all at once, you're going to uh, face, you're going to get burned out faster than we already do, I feel like. Um, so, uh, so yeah, um, keep, keep the conversations going. Don't forget about your administrators and hold them accountable too. Don't, don't just, one of my scenarios is, okay, they give you a blank check. What are, you're the theorists, do whatever you want. Uh, no, no, really press them, I think, and say, you know, well, how is this going to affect our students and how, how might this uh, change our institution? What is your institution's mission? What are you, what are you trying to do with your students? Um, it's all important stuff. That really is. Yeah, thanks for raising a lot of those good points. You got to build the relationships. Otherwise, where are we going? You're just going to fight up against the big wall and just keep ramming your head into that same wall over and over again, which is so defeating. And you're trying and trying. And it's, yeah, it's hard. So speaking of the whys and hows of this undergraduate music theory courses, uh, Kate, your article, uh, I loved uh, one, my favorite part of the article, you probably never guessed that this is my favorite part, but it was when you said in the wild in quotes, because I thought that was so funny. I just started laughing out loud when I was reading it. Um, I love it. <laughs> it was implying that what we're doing is not music in the wild. It's just, you know, this other thing. And I just, I was, I was cracking up so hard when I read your, you're in the wild. Um, but I know that wasn't like, you know, very central to what you were saying, but maybe you can enlighten us beyond in the wild, you know, some of the adjustments that you've made, um, yeah. to your courses and, and things like that. Well, I mean, actually in the wild, it's, it's, a, I I think it's an important, um, conversation point in my classrooms with my students. Um, I, for the most part, have been teaching theory and liberal arts environments. So I have music majors and non-majors and minors, and then like the random CS major who wants to take a music course and or computer science major who wants to take a music course uh, in the room all at the same time. So a lot of what I am thinking about when I'm teaching theory is how do I sort of meet them in meet my students in the resonant spaces that they occupy most often. And so how can I frame a concept that, you know, a concept like harmony or tonality, um, for instance, in a way that maybe is easier or more immediately graspable by somebody who hasn't grown up or been educated, you know, from the age of six or whatever in, in this particular system um, that many of us uh, exist in. And so, um, you know, for instance, like sometimes I talk about tonality, like the sun and the solar system and this feeling of, of a pull of gravity to one place. And um, the in the wild thing comes from uh, a little bit of engineering and a little bit of computer science and a little bit of, um, of, of physics, like I remember in in and in classes when I was uh, in high school, you know, we learned these formulas for things, and they all exist in frictionless vacuums, right? You have a, a some some theorem for a thing, and this is the set of letters, and if you follow this equation and plug in all the things in this frictionless vacuum, it will all, you know, sort of pay out. It'll all add up. And um, in CS, I think one of the phrases that sometimes gets used is, used is assume a spherical cow, which is just like, you know, sort of assuming this perfect thing that doesn't actually exist, go forward from here. And so, so you know, a lot of what, what I prioritize in, in my classes with my students is, 
is encouraging them to be flexible in their expectations of how these things we teach them in the abstract actually show up or get used or utilized in music. And so, you know, I'd like to tell you that all, you know, all seven diminished seven labels move to one, but that's not actually true. Or that, that, you know, we tend to teach, if we're talking about three note chords, we're talking about triads and there's four qualities of triad, major, minor, augmented, and diminished. But in reality, my theory one students are not going to see an augmented triad in their, you know, sort of regular day-to-day -day life, but we teach them all as if they're sort of equally weighted in that beginning point of study. And so, um, you know, I think, I think having the conversation of the why I chose to say this thing or why I chose to, to leave this thing out or spend more time on, on an element of, you know, where would you take a breath if you were going to sing this line as a way of helping you to lead you towards thinking about closure and cadences um, rather than presenting it in a different way is, are some of the ways that, that um, I think about my theory courses and, and most often it, it roots from wanting transparency and clarity with the students so they know where I'm coming from. And so they can as easily as possible take a concept in class in theory class and make it make sense in the space of music, but also take it back to whatever their larger programs or other programs of study or practice in music outside of class might be. I also laughed at the in the wild because I say that too. So I don't know, we must be reading the same things. Um, one of the things I really like that you said is that you talk to the students about how each song or each piece of music kind of has its own container its own like space that it lives in and parameters that it's working in. Can you kind of expand on that a little bit more for those listening? Yeah, that's a great question. I I think the container thing from for me comes actually from being a composer because I tell people I'm a composer and they say, oh, what kind of music do you write? Or like, who are the composers that you write like? And so often in the question, they're asking me to put myself in in a space with other people or with other existing things. And I always really struggle with that question, but I think, um, you know, in the, in the essay, I talk about thinking about any kind of container and the different properties it might have. So maybe it doesn't have a lid or maybe instead of rigid sides, it has flexible sides, or, um, you know, maybe the, the material can sort of be pushed and molded. And again, this comes from the sort of origins of, of my, education and, and sort of thoughts as a maker. Um, and, and I think one of the ways that, that these conversations about how music works, you know, and what are these sort of component parts that are all going together to make something work for us as listeners or performers um, is, is really encouraging sort of a flexibility of approach, right? So, you know, it doesn't make sense to to put a bunch of Roman numerals on two voice counterpoint from the 16th century. I mean, if, if we're going to sort of go to the, the furthest extreme, right? Because each of those things are yielding sort of different intention. Or one of the examples that I use in the, in the essay is from um, a song from the musical Hamilton, where there's a, just rampant sevenths intervals between the the melody the voice and the bass line and for a lot of that opening part of the piece it really is just the singer and that bass low register piano and 
that that we maybe then have to think about how we're talking about the function of the interval of the seventh not as a dissonance that would resolve as a leading tone up to tonic or that needs to resolve down by step um you know in in sort of passing right but that we're we're saying oh this is a thing an object that i notice but the container metaphor is encouraging students to think about um sort of being flexible in the spaces that that object can live in uh, and how that object's meaning changes depending on the container in which it's hanging out in in that given moment. As a composer, I really resonate with that. And <laughs> it makes total sense thinking about your article that you're a composer because it sounds like a composer wrote it. I mean, the metaphors, the poetic <laughs> kind of ideas. Yeah. But I think that's, as a composer, we think of our pieces as self, these kind of self-contained kind of islands or entities, right? That have their own rules, that have their own logic, right? And so that allows, and that inherent in that is that this flexibility that, you know, anything can happen as long as it's kind of operating in these rules that I, as the composer, get to design, right? Um, and I think that's a, a positive uh, when teaching theory is to have this little bit more flexible, open view of composition and what happens in music it's not this like fixed thing that these composers are working with necessarily but it's more kind of this open open thing and every piece is kind of its unique thing yeah and I think you know it's interesting so people who listen to this podcast will know I'm a composer but there's nothing that identifies me as a composer in the essay so there's your little easter egg <laughs> for the <laughs> for the day um you know, but I, I think, you know, one of the things that I really love about Bill's essay in Neuromanian theory is he's also like giving us new containers to think about um, theory and, and how we just think about how music works and, and sort of asks us uh, really, you know, just sort of the other side of, of the coin of, of that, um, of that idea of this flexibility that we're all really sort of pushing in, in the colloquy. I mean, Bill, she set you up with the perfect segue. We don't even have to do it. Jen and Ben and I, we're just going to sign off and leave you six to just finish out the show. <laughs> Need us at all. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I guess, you know, I'm in this position of, of my essays, the last one. And, and I actually don't think I was last in the, the panel session because I remember thinking that like, all right, now Kate and I are the transition to maybe what can you do instead? Like we've talked about, we've diagnosed some of the issues. We've talked about the big, um, you know, things that go on institutionally and among individual faculty members and, you know, what might you do? And uh, I like to think of, of uh, Neo-Romanian theory as something that comes up and it looks at voice leading in this totally different way. Um, you know, we talked earlier about, can you separate voice leading from corrals? You know, should you? And you know, I think one of the good things about looking at Neo-Romanian theory is that it's such a different view of voice leading and it totally hinges on voice leading, but it brings you into totally different styles of music. Um, so one thing you asked me to sort of quickly and uh, simply define Neo-Romanian theory, um, it's a, a bit of a contested term these days. Uh, with sort of what is and what isn't and should you still be using it. But basically Neo-Romanian theory is this sort of set of approaches to music that are heavily influenced by 19th and early 20th century German music theory, 
primarily the work of Hugo Riemann, whom it's named after as a sort of you know, new, new Riemann or revived Riemann, but other theorists too. And it's a way of looking at relationships between triads. You know, we use it generally to look at chromatic relationships, um, but the really cool thing about it is it looks at sort of individual voices moving, um, whether those are literal, you know, note to note motions or sort of more in pitch classes, but you're looking for half steps and whole steps and things like that. And so one of the things that I really love to do with Neo-Romanian theory is look back at things we've already done. Here's a completely different way of understanding this progression that maybe didn't fit in or was presented as this really, you know, out of the box thing when we encountered it earlier, you know, this, this modulation that Schubert has or something like that, that took a lot of explaining. Now we have a theory that we come back to at the end of the semester and, you know, it sort of can explain very concisely, oh, it's a P and an L once you learn this, this uh, language of parallel relative light tone vexel transformations and you know, many, many others. One of the things I really liked and enjoyed when I read the article was that it kind of, so you, you introduce this in theory three, is that right? That's where mm -hmm. you start to kind of use this language with your students. Yeah. And I liked how you talk about how you, you do teach Corral style writing in earlier semesters, and that this is a way to help them bridge that sort of understanding that they've learned previously into a much broader and more diverse repertoire and to help them see the connection there. Mm -hmm. That's often what we're all trying to do and hoping that they're able to do, but sometimes I worry like, is that happening? Mm -hmm. um, and so I really liked that you're you're kind of drawing that line there for the students and helping them expand it out. Yeah, thanks, Jen. Yeah, it's it's this really interesting opportunity to kind of pull back the curtain on music theory, which I feel like we're sometimes reluctant to do. You know, that's one of the many forces that's involved in this whole conversation is the, the desire to be as consistent as possible, as you know, kind of fair and predictable. You know, we talked about grading before and how corrals kind of facilitate that. Um, and so like looking at neo-Romanian or transformational theory, like it lets you kind of say, okay, there are many aspects of theory that are still kind of developing. You know, this has only been a part of the lexicon for 25 years. Um, as I said, it's the terminology is sort of contested. People are still sort of figuring out when and how to use this theory. And it really explicitly sets you up for all the things that we already will ask them to do in theory four. You know, suddenly you have to think about pitch classes. Suddenly you have to think about things that are inverting in these hypothetical spaces. And, you know, I, I think of this as a kind of friendlier way to get into that, you know, visualizing things. Um, and you can just do really cool things with it. One of the things I say in the paper is uh, one of my students calls the music theory cheat codes, which is like my favorite student comment that I've ever gotten, um, which, you know, number one, it's perfect because they're really fun to play with, you know, I mean, they're really rewarding analytically, but they're amazing to compose with and to just kind of sit down at the piano and you can create all these wild progressions. But the thing that I really like about the music theory cheat codes comment is that for that student, you know, who, you know, had a lot of trouble with some aspects of theory three, um, they work in such a different way. Transformational theory works in such a different way that for some students, it just clicks. 
in this way that maybe other material doesn't. And suddenly they're thinking about harmony differently and it really like locks in for them and they suddenly get this charge out of music theory. Um, if I could jump in, Bill, if, if that's okay, just, um, I don't, just on this point of Neo-Romani and using them and, and, and the theory classroom, we just, uh, I'd, I'd like to say it's because of you, Bill, that we just started <laughs> using more Neo-Romani theory. We just introduced it for the first time last, last year, I guess it was. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so just a quick anecdote in terms of, you know, having not done Neo-Romani theory, at least in the core undergraduate mm -hmm. uh, sequence, and then how, now having done it, I guess this will be the second year that, that we'll, we'll do it, um, that, uh, the, the connections that you talk about that the students can connect to the music, uh, it was very obvious. It, it was very evident. It, it happened immediately. It opened up the new repertoire, you know, uh, and so I was, we were able to bring in, you know, more film music and, 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 and not lose any of the, uh, whatever you want to call it, fidelity of the, of the voice leading, mm -hmm. uh, critical thinking aspect of it, I, I think. So, um, so yeah, I, I think it's good. I, I think more and more, as you know, uh, more and more um, uh, places are, are trying it out, using it. We we are, and I think it's, and, and we're going to shift things, kind of like how how you've suggested it in terms of well, it used to be in our theory four, but now we're going to move a little bit earlier to help open up those ideas for for later on. So that's just a, a quick anecdote, uh, at least at least from my end. No, I absolutely love the integration with. With film music and that's what I first thought of when I started reading your article actually I was like oh my gosh it sounds like Frank Lehman and I've been working on this separate film music project for some of the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe like, oh my gosh it just reminds me of Frank, Frank Lehman so much and then I scroll down there it is there's there's an example of film <laughs> music right I was like oh my gosh it's perfect that's kind of where where this would, would go and it's such a such a great way of doing it I mean I tried to like go through some of some of Lehman stuff recently and it just takes me so long and I think part of it is because I didn't have that in my undergrad, you know, I didn't have that kind of background. So I'm like, it's taking me too long to process all this stuff. It's just going to take me this long, you know, I'm a professional music theorist, you know, yeah. but maybe with that background, you know, it all comes down to like what we did in our, you know, in our undergrad and like now having the open-mindedness enough to go back and re revisit that. And I think Kate actually makes the point of like taking that and saying, okay, this is, you know, where we came from and like having the wherewithal open-mindedness to say, okay, some of those things are good. Some of those things are bad, <laughs> you know, and just kind of going, going through that for me, definitely near Romani in theory is one of the things that I just haven't, you know, gotten the, the fluency with it yet that I would like to have, especially to engaging, as I said, with, with film music, it helps so much. I think that's like one of the things that is sort of really inspiring about, um, about both Bill and Kate's essays is the ways that they just sort of open up other possibilities so that even if you weren't an expert in those areas that you can see ways to use it and that you will see your students take it up possibly much more quickly than you will because it opens up things for them that they find challenging and that they haven't been sitting with for a long time in other realms um, and so I find that really exciting about just just the ways of of that it sort of just like starts that process in totally new paths for them. I can't remember which one of you mentioned this in your article, but one of you said something like, for some students, part writing ends up being just like a hoop you have to jump through to get done with this class or whatever. Some students find it completely 
just totally irrelevant and boring and they don't understand why we're doing it. Some students love it because it's a puzzle and they have to kind of figure it out. Um, and I, so I thought like, I wonder my, my friends who I went to college with, how do they view part writing and do they see it as useful now that they are many years out of school and have been working in music for a long time. And so I texted them and I asked them and the response was hilarious. It's probably exactly what you expect because one of them said, I think at the time I viewed it as a hoop that I had to get through just something I had to learn to get through theory. But now I see how, you know, sometimes I'm working on something with my students and the arrangement isn't quite right. And I have to rearrange it. And those skills that I learned have been really, really useful. And I couldn't do those things if I hadn't learned that. And the other person responded and said, I don't remember what part writing is. Can you tell me? <laughs> Question mark. <laughs> and I thought, well, right there it is. Like, we cannot predict what they're going to need or how useful it's going to be. It's such a challenging thing to do. And uh, I just love, I like the idea of like just having more tools in the toolbox because something is going to reach one student, as you said, that maybe has struggled with everything else in the class, but then neo-Ramanian theory makes it click for them. Maybe somebody didn't think part writing was important. Now they're using it to rearrange, you know, children's choral arrangements and they see the value of it now. Mm -hmm. And maybe someone else is like, I don't remember what that is. Can you tell me? I was like, do you remember how we're not supposed to write parallels? And she was like, oh, yeah, that, yeah, that rings a bell. So, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and that like gets to, I mean, the most exciting thing that we do is that we are kind of like shaping <laughs> the future, like future of music and stuff like that. And so it's like, mm -hmm. the, we get into the chicken and egg thing with this, right? Where mm -hmm. you're like, well, yeah, like I walked out into a world where everybody else had part writing and so I have part writing too, you know? And so that's the the messiness of trying to kind of like figure out what, what we're doing and, um, and trying to keep like these future musicians in mind, which is like the goal of everything we do, which can definitely get lost in the bureaucracy and the difficulty and the, um, you know, the, the nitty gritty of it all. Yeah, I had kind of tagging along to that again is I had one of my friends that teaches band in Pennsylvania who played together jazz professionally. And he was teaching AP theory and he's, you know, a couple of weeks and he's like, can you remind me really quickly why parallel fists are so bad? And I was like, hold on, let's just, let's just stop right there before you finish your, finish your remark. I just want to stop you, you know? And then I thought back because at school the week before, you know, one of my colleagues had come in and said, I heard that you said in class that parallel fists were permissible. You know, I'm like, dude, I heard parallel fists on the way over here to the school today. Like, you know, so it's just all these like perspectives coming in together and like, can we just like talk about style, you know, and, like, but yeah, this, it's hard to start even conversations with people because like you have so many things going in that they're, they're coming from and you kind of have to, you know, kind of back to, to Pete's point is like, don't dismiss, but like, where can I meet you in the middle where we can come to like this understanding, you know, of, of different aspects of what we're teaching <laughs> at various levels from high school through college, through, through grad school. I mean, all of it, it's, it's all, it's all a can of worms. And I think it harkens back to, to Marcy's earlier point about just trying to sort of move, talking about like good voice leading, right. The, just the word good shifting some of our vocabulary that automatically assigns value 
to a practice, good voice leading, bad range choice, like, you know, you know, what's sort of successful or um, permissible even, right? Like the idea of something be per- being permissible or not allowed, like, mm-hmm. you know, this idea of negation, I think that there's a lot of, of language sort of inherently built into this, into how we talk about theory and, and who was it at the plenary in 2019 who, I mean, in the whole plenary in SMT in 2019, there was a, a, a lot of conversation about language and vocabulary and what's, you know, like the ideal form for a sonata or any of, you know, any of these structures and, and trying to sort of shift away also from just that vocabulary that we use so often without thinking about it. Cause that's the way a lot of us were exposed to, to music theory. I think you're thinking of Joe Strauss's yeah, yeah. Uh, Strauss paper, thing. I think. Right? Yeah. At the yeah. 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 And so, um, you know, and just the, I think the vocabulary choice about how we qualify any of these practices is, is a really important and it's an important topic that we definitely didn't explore in this colloquy, but maybe we put that on the agenda for our next meeting. Well, friends. but I think that's a good point. And it's, and it's not just about, I, I mean, I don't know. No, I, I don't think any of us are saying corral is good or bad. Right. I mean, it's just, nope. we, we, we need to think about it. And, and so, I mean, maybe, maybe some of us might feels more strongly than, than others, but, but, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I just think just to, just to reiterate that kid, I, I think it's important to, to, to keep that in mind. What's, what's good or, or what's bad and, and, and to try to move away from that. Um, this is the end of finals week for me and I know for Ben and probably for most of you. So I really thank you so much for, for meeting with us at this really busy time of year, but this is, I, I've, I've really enjoyed this. This has been such a great way of ending the week, um, a very busy time of year. Um, I thought we could do maybe some real quick rapid fire. That's what we'd like to do uh, with our, with our guests normally is just each of us are going to ask you just a real quick question. You just off the answer right off the top of your head. Um, I'll, I'll start with mine. I think I have mine. Do you have yours, Jen or Ben? Okay. I, we didn't talk about this at all. So uh, my, my question is, What's the one composer who will who is not in theory textbooks or in theory textbooks very much now that will be in theory textbooks 50, 100 years from now? This in an ideal world? Or yes, in this in your world? ideal I, ideal world. Can I go first? Sure. Oh, <laughs> so I saw Bill. Go ahead. Go ahead. We can't hear you, Bill. Oh, we lost your audio, Bill. Still no audio. Go ahead, William. Yeah, I I was going to say Billie Eilish. Uh, She may very well figure in in, in, um, music theory textbooks, but, uh, you know, I haven't seen, uh, I'm out of touch, but uh, fantastic stuff. And so creative and in ways that I think, um, you know, uh, North American music theory just doesn't know what to do with yet, I think. Good. I'm going to go cop out and just say, like, I'm not convinced that we'll have like a music theory textbook in a hundred years that we that we would be like, this is in the textbooks, because like, I think things are fragmenting and moving in, you know, very different directions in different yeah. places. Good. Yeah, I also want to get meta about this, because I was like thinking about my answer, which for the record, I've been like fan 
girling out about St. Vincent lately, and I just think she does great stuff, like, musically, production-wise, etc. But then I was, like, thinking about my value system for kind of, you know, like, choosing that artist, and I'm like, well, we could talk about her chords, you know, like, we could, we could really talk about St. Vincent's chords, and then I was like, I don't know, like, I don't know if that's what the future will be, is cool chords. We can't get away from harmony. I'm also going to cheat in my answer and say uh, more musical theater. Mm. Broadly. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I have an answer to this, but I was going to go a little bit there, there, Kate, you know, uh, or, or, you know, it's hard to say like Taylor Swift is huge right now. Taylor Swift concerts are uh, conferences. Right. So, you know, I, I feel, I feel like there, there is going to be, and, and since the, the, scholarship is is more and more on, on these sorts of things you know why not Sondheim right you know or something and so more more of that uh, and the types of innovations that uh, that that came out out of that I think so that's that's not one answer um yeah that's great and then Bill has put in the chat let's see Amy Beach and Kate Pekinskis all right well that's <laughs> why <so not>? sweet <laughs> Jen or Ben? I can just uh, cop out as well and say minor Joe or minor law. That's a that's a popular uh, rapid fire question. So there you go. Minor Doe or minor law. Nice. Minor Doe. Minor Doe all the way. Same. Also scale degrees for the record. Yes, scale degrees. Firm, yes. One, three, five. Pluralism. <laughs> Ecumenical solfege systems. <laughs> we don't have any fixed dough people in here? Nobody? I was educated in fixed dough. My bachelor's degree was fixed dough. And I mm. really appreciate it because I have nice, accurate pitch. But I don't think I would force it on anybody mm. in the future. Before our listeners, I think Bill is having audio problems, but I think he said minor dough. Am I right? Minor, yeah. Did I just, oh, you're did back. I just fix it? Yes. Yay! yes. <laughs> back. I did all these fancy things and nothing worked. And then I just unplugged the headphones and plugged them back in and that fixed it. Um, hey, yeah. yeah, I actually used to be kind of a law-based minor person, but then I saw the light. Uh, I stopped. <laughs> I started to, to realize that I had a lot more problems that it raises. Mine is oral skills or theory. What do you take if you could only have one? Ouch. I am, I'm going to go. I, th I think I'm actually going to go oral training. Um, uh, I've always been interested in listener reactions and starting with a, with the listener for analysis. And um, uh, so I, I, I'm going to, that's a hard question, but I, I, the first thing that popped into my head actually was, no, I think oral training, it's more, it's more useful, uh, thinking about our students. Um, not that theory is not important. I love my theories, but, uh, but, uh, what's going to be more practical for, for, for the future choir directors and orchestra directors and, and, uh, I'll, I'll go with oral training. Can you clarify? I don't really understand. Like, do you mean when you say oral versus theory, do you mean <laughs> that theory just means written or do you mean like, like, what do you mean by theory? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. It's totally a loaded question. That's part of the reason I ask it. I kind of want to see what people say <laughs> is that I'm implying that 
you would have like strictly oral skills and then you would have strictly written theory, which obviously probably none of us actually teach that way. But, you know, if you had to somehow, you know, teach mainly via oral skills, I guess, or mainly via written skills, you know, where do you kind of see that? Uh, how do you kind of see that playing out? Or if you had to choose only one sequence, you know, I think a lot of people split that up. Um, how, how would you approach that? And we're gonna go improvisation as like a third way. Mm. Yeah, I was gonna say like dissolve the distinction, you know, that, that uh, you know, I think the most successful ways of teaching written theory involve a lot of, of, uh, of sightseeing. And depending on the way different institutions do that, like you can kind of feel hamstrung of like, well, I should be doing this when I have you these two or three days a week or whatever, because you're doing, that in the other one, but actually the most effective thing would be to do them both. I think I would go oral. I mean, I think also that um, I'm, I'm a little bit biased. Um, I mean, many, several of the folks in this group did our graduate work at University of Chicago. And one of the courses that you teach uh, when you're there is uh, intro to music analysis and criticism, but anybody can take it. So you're teaching analysis through oral means, um, as the structure for a course. And it's um, it's actually like a really beautiful and delightful course to teach, just to think about like how to understand the music without, I mean, even without sort of the kinds of concepts that you learn so deeply in, in written theory, which I also think are really important to learn through RL means. And I just taught a popular music course where I, I know a lot of people do written transcription as a big part of their popular music course. And we did just like the tiniest bit of that. And that was it. I mean, I just really wanted them to be focusing on their, on their ears, you know? Yeah. And, and Marcy just wrote in the chat that she still thinks that's music theory. And that's, and I totally agree. And that's why I asked that question. Like, what do we mean by that? So if, if you had to deliver the music theory concepts through RL means or through written means, and you had to do just one of those, I guess I would say RL because music is still sound. Right. And that's our, our hope is to connect to a sonic experience or a sounding experience for, for me, at least I'm, the way I think about my teaching. I'm hearkening back to the in the wild. So I would go oral skills if that's the way we're going to go. But I also don't right. accept the premise that they're separate, separate functions. Oral skills is more of a survival skill, right? If you're out in the wild, yes, totally. you will survive more with oral skills. How's that? That's also <laughs> accurate. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to go hard oral skills myself. I, I um, One of the things I'm sort of bent out of shape about, uh, you know, very often is um, how much uh, we're fixated on, on visuality, um, on visual technology, like writing and, um, you know, visual metaphors for um, conceptualization and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that goes uh, almost without question, um, even to say like what when we use the word theory, we mean written theory, you know, and like um, we can use the word music to refer to a score, right? As if like, you know, they're they're coterminous or whatever, and they're totally not, right? There's so much that's, um, that's, that's included and focused on and, and digested and interpreted in the notation that we have, and there's so much that's sort of excluded in, in the process. So, um, so I would love to interrogate a heck of a lot more than we do already. Um, all this visuality and, and these visual uh, metaphors and technologies that we that we uh, incorporate as a matter of course in music theory. No, I love it. That's precisely the reason why I asked this because it always some something always comes up like this, and it just gives me seemingly a new perspective every time I ask somebody that in a rapid fire. So maybe the the question 
the question in the future can maybe be in the wild if you're only having to survive with one skill is it <laughs> roman numerals or solfege i'm just kidding you could even be on naked uh, and afraid know. and stick it with take it with. <laughs> don't need, i mean you have a knife and your oral skills there um, <laughs> <laughs> well this has been such a treat and uh for all you listening go check out their article corralling the corral in the latest edition of the journal of music theory pedagogy you're going to have so many things to think about um, ideas to take away and i think the way you all have just written about and and i think uh as as you mentioned you know the voice leading and part writing is certainly one thing that we need to examine but i think once you read the article you start thinking about all these other things that you have that you're assuming have to be or are part of theory and that you start thinking well maybe we can make room for these other things or expand these other things out so thank you so much this has been a treat and i know you all have well some of you are on sabbatical so you're all enjoy the vermont mountains and things like that but some of us have things to grade or projects to finish and i know it's, it's a, a hectic time of year but thank you again so 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 much this has been thank such you. a fun time um, and we yeah, love thanks. to do it again. Yeah, thank you guys. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. We will be back with more interviews with professors and teachers who will be dropping all sorts of theory knowledge for your education, edification, and enjoyment. So until then, bye-bye.